Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, I ask at this time that you turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at just the first two verses. You'll find this if you're looking at a pew Bible in page 942. Uh, for those of you who have not yet uh, given or considered giving to missions, you still have those uh, pledge cards, commitment cards rather, uh, behind you, so don't let them bother you, just use them if you have not done so and plan to do so. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2 says the following. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. A gracious Heavenly Father, again, we ask that as we now gather as your people who are called by your name, desirous of being molded and shaped into the image of our Lord, that you would take this time to do exactly that and do it again to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, those of you who remember, might remember me speaking of my upbringing, most likely remember me saying that I was raised from a very early age by my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, who went on, she went on to be with the Lord in 2005. Let me add this thought to what I told you then. I've come to the realization that the older I get, the more I learn about life and and people and situations, the more the love and appreciation I, I, I have, notice I said have, not had, for my aunt grows and grows and continues to grow. The more I consider the relationship I had with her, the things she did for me, and the things I witnessed concerning her, the more my heart fills with gratitude, love and appreciation for her. And as I was looking at our text this morning, I couldn't help but to think that the same dynamic as it relates to our Lord is at play here. Among other things, it is the Holy Spirit's job to, to reveal Christ, to reveal what he has said and what he has done. And, and I can't help but to think that a part of that task includes the fostering of hearts and minds that grow in their appreciation and love for Christ. In John 14, 21, Jesus is recording as having said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then a little further along in verse 25, we hear him saying, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Now all that Jesus said includes what we find in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, he was asked what the, the greatest commandment was, and he replied by, by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is 
the great and first commandment. Now continuing with my line of reasoning here, it should not be and I should not surprise us then based on our Lord's own words that the Holy Spirit in his sanctifying of us, cleansing us, molding us, making us more and more like Christ would move us from one degree of love and appreciation for our Lord to another, a higher, a deeper, a greater love for our Lord based on the revelation of who he is and what he's done. The only question is, how is he, the Holy Spirit, doing this? One answer I would offer is through text like the one we have before us. Before we arrived at this text, and particularly in chapters 1 through uh, 3, we learn some things about ourselves, and not just about ourselves, but about all humankind. We learned about the predicament, predicament we were in, separated from God, justly deserving his wrath, and without any hope whatsoever. But then hope showed up starting in chapter 3. And as a result of that hope, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but we'll become more specific as we look at our text. And so as a result of that hope, our status was changed. And now we find ourselves here in chapter 5 being addressed as those whose status have been changed. And so with those preliminary thoughts in mind, I'd like us to look at these, just these two verses under the following headings. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Access to God through Jesus Christ. And a hope that produces hearts that rejoice through Jesus Christ. Indeed, you see, as the scripture says, it's all from him. It grows through him and it is to him, for his God that is glory. As we look at our text then, the first thing we need to look at closely, and before we really begin flushing out the three headings I just mentioned, is the opening phrase, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. The therefore here tells us that Paul is connecting what we have before us to something that came before and that something is the well-reasoned, conclusive truth that those who have placed their trust in Christ can rest assured that their faith has been credited to them as righteousness. They have been made right with God. This as a consequence of Christ having been put to death for their sins and raised again that they, we, might be declared just. That is having a right standing before God, declared free from the ultimate penalty of sin. The Bible, the word of God tells us the wages of sin is death. And so we've been removed from death and final separation from God. And notice the phrase does not say we will be justified. It says we have been. It's past tense. We're not earning our salvation we're not trying to keep our salvation. We already know that's impossible from what we read before. But now there, uh, there is, however, there is a sense in which we are being saved and will one day experience the fullness of our salvation. But make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, what God has done has been done. 
We are his and he is ours. And so it is with that fact in mind that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, begins to share with us a love-increasing articulation of the benefits we have because of our justification. These are the things that Christ has done for us that should move us in our love for him. First look at the second half of verse 1. It says, we have peace with God. Now it's important for us to understand what this, this word peace means here. You should know that it is not a subjective term. It's not a feeling, or in other words, it is, it's not the peace of God that's spoken about in Philippians 4, 6-7, where we hear, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace spoken of there produces a feeling of calm, well-being, and so forth. But the peace here in verse 1 is an objective, not a subjective peace. Let me remind you then that before the Apostle Paul started speaking of justification by faith and honing in on that in chapter 3, verse 21, the word or term that he used most was wrath. In Romans 3.10, we read that there was none righteous, no, not one. In chapter 3, verse 23, we read that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That being the case, we were all sons of wrath, subject to the judgment of the ultimate judge. All there was between us and God was hostility. Concerning us, Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Concerning God, listen to how the scriptures speak of his relationship with unbelievers. Psalm eleven five, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Psalm seven eleven. From the New King James Version, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. I didn't say that. The Word of God says that. So you see, not only are all unbelievers enemies of God, but God is also the enemy of all unbelievers. So much so that as you've heard the scriptures record that he is angry with them every day, and thus we hear in Romans 1.8, for instance, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And guess who that included? You and me. But you know, there's a song that I, I used to love to sing, and it says, but that's not how the story ends. Uh, no, not at all. We are rescued. We were rescued by our king through his finished work. And have gone from being in a state of war with God, at enmity with God, subject to his just displeasure, to now having an objective peace, the peace spoken of here in our text. We have been reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, there's been a, a tangible removal 
of the hostility between you and God. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we have been justified by faith. The cause of the warfare between ourselves and God has been removed and peace is the result. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what that means? Now that we have peace with God, now we can have the peace of God that's spoken about in Philippians 4. Now we're able, you're able to experience this peace of God, this peace that passes all understanding. It is important for you to understand that the war between you and God is over. The hostility between you and God is over. The wrath of God is not upon you. His grace is where you are. The discipline of God might be upon you, but discipline is a good thing. So you have peace. We have peace with God. And you know what else we have? Access to God, our second heaven. Before Christ, the Jews could not approach God the way we do now. And it was even worse for Gentiles regarding the tabernacle in the in the wilderness, folks presented their offerings to the Levites who sacrificed it on their behalf. The priests ministered in the tabernacle as far as the holy place, but only the high priest could enter the most holy place, the place where God resided, the holy, the thrice holy God. And even then, the high priest was only allowed that access once a year for the atoning work that he was doing, doing so as a mediator between God and man, taking with him the, the blood of the atonement and pouring it on the mercy seat, again, as a mediation between God, mediator between God and man. And his job, even his job, was not without risk. For if he was found to be unworthy for some reason, he would be killed. He literally had to wear a, a garment. On his garment, he had bells on it so that those on the outside would know if he was still alive in the presence of a thrice holy, holy, holy God. The temple was divided in much the same way. Gentiles could not enter but had to remain in an outside courtyard area. And the next level you had a court where women and men were divided. Going further, you had the place where the priests could go. But once again, only the high priest could go beyond the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And our Lord, he came and changed this. No longer was there need for a yearly turning sacrifice because he did it. Once and for all, neither was there any need for the other burdensome sacrifices which served as a pointer to the need for something greater. 
Jesus came and gave himself up as the ultimate sacrifice. He is our mediator. He served as the once and for all sacrifice that was needed for us to be reconciled to God. All the walls of separation have been taken down. And thus the Apostle Paul could explain, exclaim as he did in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. In this day and age, I feel compelled to say that he's talking about it as regards to access to Christ, to salvation. He's not saying that there's no gender differences or role differences. Okay, um, but again, we have that access. You right, remember that after Jesus, when he was hung, hanging on the cross and he was finished, he exclaimed, it is finished. And then the veil in the temple tore from the top to the bottom. You can find that in Matthew 27. This act of God marked the beginning of our, all of us, Gentiles, Jews, everyone, of our unfettered access to him, to God the Father, through Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews 4.16, we're encouraged then to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Paul tells us that we have received this access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So by now we can see how this should be taken. By the mercy of God, we have been brought into the grace of sanctification. We're talking about here when it says we stand in this grace. We have been brought in to the grace of justification, and that is a grace in which we now have the privilege to stand. Before we were standing outside the realms of God's mercy, outside the realm of his family, and now we are standing where he has put us and is in the grace of the justification that he brought about for us. Now we are standing within, not as enemies. If you are calling Christ your own, if you profess him as your Lord and Savior, you again, I must say, are not his enemy. You're not a pardoned criminal either. But you are in his sight, sons and daughters of Almighty God. Verse 2 goes on to tell us that we have a hope that produces hearts that rejoice in and through our Lord. Rejoice in what exactly, Dean? Exactly what? And what is this hope? Well, it is nothing less than what theologians have called the beatific vision is nothing less than what theologians, it is the vision of God. It's what Moses asked God to show him, his glory. It is that which the saints of ages have longed for fervently, that which Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. We were eyewitness of his glory, he said. It is to see God face to face. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 wrote, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so we revel in that time. We rejoice, exalt it means, in the hope 
that is set before us. And let me tell you, the word hope here is not to be understood the way we understand it today. During the times when this was written, the word meant certainty. You know, when we think of hope in our culture and in our time today, it's like a contingency. I have a party and I've invited people to my house and I hope that they'll show up. But that's not what's going on here. This word hope in scripture means certainty. It is a sure thing that we who have been justified will see God face to face. Here are some verses that validate and reinforce that assertion. Acts 2, 26, 27. My body also will live in hope because you will not, not you might not, you will not abandon me to the grave. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three things remain. They remain faith, hope, and love. 2 Corinthians 1, 7, and our hope in you is firm. I don't know about you, but you should understand a subjunctive or contingency is not firm. Caleb will tell you that when we have office meetings sometimes, and he says, I hope Dean shows up on time. Titus 1, 2, hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Folks, you know, I feel compelled to say this. I opened up by talking about my great aunt and, and, and the fact of how my appreciation and love for her has grown. Well, let me tell you this. Growing up, and many of you know this, I was less than good. <laughs> Bad, okay? You might not know that my mom had me, I mean my, my aunt, not only had me, but she had my older sister living with us also. And me and my older sister used to fight like cat and dogs, even using weapons, okay? And my aunt made the decision to send my sister back to my mom and kept me. And she kept me and I kept on doing all kinds of crazy things. I stole from her. You heard me talk about the incidents or incidences of replacing her one liter of Sprite with water, hoping that she won't see it or, or drink it until I bought it back and she finding out, stealing money from her, getting in trouble outside. I can go on and on and on. Let's say I was not who you would call a model kid. I was as bad as dirt. But guess what? This woman who took me in, who adopted me, would not let me go. No matter what I did, she would not let me go. I did bad in school and felt like, you know what? She's going to send me back to my mom. She would not let me go. In the summers when I visited my mom in New York, the thought occurred, she might say, stay there. She was happy to see me come back to create more havoc. She would not let me go. So for those people, if you're in here and, and you are thinking that you can lose your salvation, that God will let you go for some reason, after he, after you've been justified by, by faith, have his mercy extended to you, let me ask you this. Is God less faithful than my aunt. Is God less faithful 
than those people who have been faithful to you and the things that are most certain in your life? The answer is certainly not. He is absolutely faithful. And what we have, we can be assured that he will keep until that day, as it says in Philippians 1.6. Your love for God should be increasing for Christ, should be increasing the more these things are brought before you, as it is when I realize how good, how faithful, and everything else my aunt was for me. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, for that which is certain, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you should get again from these verses that we have a sure and certain end to our toil, and hence we can be steadfast, unmovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, for we know that our labor in him is not in vain. He has bought us, and he is keeping us, and he will take us home. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is, in fact, an all-encompassing, comprehensive aspect to that which you've heard this morning. It flushes itself out in the sense that there is a past, present, and future connotation here. We have been saved, justified by faith, once and for all. We have current access so when we come together before a holy God, when we're by ourselves, at all points we can go into the throne room of God and do not need any other mediator between us because we have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, seated on the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. He is our prophet, priest, and king. So at all times, in every situation, we can go to our God and see what he has for us. We have been saved. We have access. And we will see our God face to face. And when we see him, we will share in the glory that he has. The same Shekinah glory that was shining on Moses' face will encompass us. How then shall we live in the light of such truth? How dare we do anything less than love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. But we should fall upon him and ask him for the grace to love him more and more. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a marvelous, what marvelous truths we've encountered this morning. We're justified by faith, and faith alone in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we have an unfettered access to you. As a result of that, we can be steadfast, immovable. Our Lord, we, we stand now in the expectation, the certainty that you will finish that which you started until the day of our Lord and Savior. For your word declares that. And all your promises are yes and amen. We thank you that the wall of hostility was removed, not because of our goodness, 
not because we're so intelligent or we know how to do things or, or anything within us, but by your mercy, by your grace, and by the love that is shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we thank you for all that you've done, and we express our love and gratitude corporately before you, even now. Thank you for saving us and saving us to the utmost. Would you now cause us to walk in the light of this truth, to walk in the light of these truths, to be steadfast again, and to share that which we have experienced to those in this lost and dying world. Be with us now as we go out into the highways and byways, working for your purposes and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.